power, man. So thank you, band. And thank you, worship team, for worshiping the Lord the way you did. Man, I felt like we were standing there, and I just the sense that I had was just a sweet sense of joy and contentment. When we make much of Jesus, then that's the response that we get from him. And so thank you, guys. That was awesome. Um, appreciate every one of you. If you are new here, if you're a guest, welcome. Uh, some of you may have even not been here last weekend, so you might be experiencing, like Johnny, our venue for the very first time. So surprise, this is our new venue. Uh, it's pretty awesome, I think. I think it's better than we ever thought or hoped it would be. But this venue is just a building. It's uh, sheetrock and a lot of cool lights and stuff, but it is nothing without the king. And so our heart for this venue is that Jesus would be the very center of all that we do. In fact, if we stop preaching Jesus here, then this building, I don't think, has much longer left to it. And so that's our declaration as a church. Some people have asked me, what do these skylines mean? And why do we have skylines on our wall? And what do they represent? Well, let me just explain that for anyone that is wondering. Johannesburg is where Katz and I come from. There's some other people that come from Johannesburg too in this church. And we have it up there because that's a nation that A, sent us, but B, we have great partnerships with. We're a church that believes in the nations. This great commission to know Christ and to make him known is something that was given to us many years ago by Jesus himself, and it exists today. We're a church that exists beyond ourselves. We're not just here for our own satisfaction. We aren't just here to build ourselves up and to become bigger and bigger and bigger so we can build a name or a reputation about who we are. We're here to declare the glorious gospel and the king to all the nations of the world. Tegucigalpa, most people can't pronounce that. It's really simple. Tegucigalpa is the capital of Honduras. Why it's there is because we have an open door in the nation of Honduras. I'm going to move this background because I can see I'm going to be knocking it out the way. Honduras is a place where we go to probably two or three times a year as an eldership team. All of us go there often. We as a church go there on various mission trips. We have an open door in Roatan and we are reaching that island with the gospel partnering with other amazing people who are already doing that, and we just love that nation. But the reason why we have Tegucigalpa there is two things. One, Honduras doesn't, I mean, Roatan doesn't have a skyline. It's an island. And so that would have looked weird. It would have been like a hill. And everyone would have been, what does that mean? But it's more than that, because we believe that through Roatan, God is opening up the mainland, the mainland of Honduras. In fact, we're trusting that God is going to show us what the next steps are to reach that entire nation. And then, of course, Austin's on the world, on the wall. It's in the world. Because this city is the city that God is using for us to send from. It's a base that we can operate on, that we can resource the nations. And I want to tell you something, Hope Block Church. We're not done with Austin yet. We believe that God has more for us and for this church in this city. Not just in Lakeway, in the city of Austin and in the surrounding areas. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know when that will happen. But I can tell you this, that God has bigger plans than we can even imagine. As long as at the center of those plans is Jesus. Not us, not our own reputations, not our desires, not our own comforts, but Jesus Christ. Amen? Just a couple of things I want to mention. And I see I'm going to have to cut out a lot from this speech because we have a lot to go through today. But this is important. A lot of people are realizing for the first time that your children are in another venue to where we are meeting. They're across the hall. Some of you are celebrating. You're like, yeah, finally. Some of you are like, man, I'm a bit worried and I get it. I want you to know that we as a church take our children's safety seriously. And so we are really passionate about our kids. Believe me, my child is one of them. And so what we are doing is we are consistently looking at and making sure that our security protocols are up to date. We have two police officers stationed in this parking lot every Sunday. They look after our venues. They look after the parking lot. They look after particularly our kids, and they'll even look after some of you. 
And so we have people on God every week looking after us. And of course, we have the God Almighty who's protecting us anyway, right? But I do want to let you know that we take it seriously and we have a lot of um, sort of meetings just to understand what can we do better every week. But there is one thing I want to bring your attention to. While I'm preaching, there may at times pop up this uh, message on the top right-hand corner of the screen. And it's going to happen any instant. There we go. That's, that's, that's tongues. I'm just, no, I'm joking. That's a code, okay? That code, and that's just a test code, so don't get excited. But that code over there means that somebody from that venue has reached out to the person who's in constant contact with them to say that one of your children needs attention. Now, that doesn't mean they've hurt themselves or something drastic. It could be they just want you to give them a hug. I don't know what it is. But in future, when you see that code pop up, don't ignore it. Please, look at the sticker that you've got. If that code represents or matches your sticker, I promise you now, we're not going to make a big deal of it. We're not going to make you embarrassed. All you need to do is get up, go outside to the person who's at guest services. There will be somebody stationed outside every week, and they'll direct you and tell you what needs to happen. So please don't ignore it. It could happen during worship. It could happen during the preach. It could happen at any moment. Look out for those letters, and you've got 30 seconds to respond. If you don't respond in 30 seconds, I don't even want to tell you what happens next, but I'm just saying, just put that out there. Okay. We are this morning back in our Revelation series. <coughs> I know we're going to announce this at the end, but I do want to honor somebody, my friend Alex Harris, who I walked across the desert with, literally walked across the desert with, is going to be here on Tuesday night, and he's going to be taking us to his Antarctic talk, his expedition to the South Pole. It's a crazy talk. Um, I've listened to it a number of times, and I want to tell you, if you don't have anything to do on Tuesday night, in fact, even if you do have something to do, cancel it and come to the talk, because it's going to be awesome. It's going to happen at 7 p.m. All our ministry night, ministry, 620 students, as well as 620 sisters, the parents, and everybody in this church is invited to come to the talk. So please put that in your calendar and put, make that a priority this week. Anyway, back to Revelations. So we're in the third of eight sections. I'm not going to give you any recap this morning because I'm so late on time, and uh, I have got so much to go through today. But let's just say the seven trumpets mean seven warnings from God. They're all about stuff that's going to happen as a result of the world not willing or not being willing to turn its back on sin and come back to God, their creator. The world has, in a large extent, turned its back on God. And God has been warning them through these seven trumpets. We've gone through six of those seven trumpets. And then last week, we covered this period in between trumpet six and trumpet seven where there was an interlude. God was speaking to John and showing him some things. And if last week was about God reminding us about how much he loves us and protects us, this morning in this interlude, God's going to do something similar. It'll be a little bit different, but he's going to show us how we can take comfort and have security and have peace knowing that God is in control and that ultimately the victory is ours. Now, I do want to say this at this point, because today we are going to be dealing with some scriptures that are going to affect all of us in different ways. I say that because people have interpreted the book of Revelation in different ways. There are four main ways the book has been interpreted. Some people look at it as speaking about history past. In other words, everything in the book has happened already. It's for the first and second century church. I don't believe that to be true personally. The second way we interpret Revelation is that it's a continuous story of history, but everything's happening in sequence. And so some stuff has happened, some stuff is happening, and some stuff is going to happen in the future, but it's chronological. You can read from Revelations 1 to chapter 22, and you figure out where you are in the timeline. Now, I don't believe in that too, but I'm not saying if you do that you're a bad person. That's not what I'm saying. We can be friends and disagree on this stuff, because to be honest, we'll all know the truth one day, and I will be right, but it's fine. I'm just kidding. The third way we can look at the book of Revelations is we can see it as a future event. Everything in the book, generally after the church has been secretly raptured, comes to fruition. The world suffers, everything's punished, and everything happens at some later date. 
The last way we interpret the book, and this is the view that I hold to, and I'm telling you this this morning because it's going to allow you to understand why I've interpreted the chapter that I'm reading to you the way I have, is I believe that the book of Revelation is about God's church. I believe that the day Jesus came to this earth and the day that he was ascended into heaven, he inaugurated what we call today as the church age. I believe we are living in the church age. I believe the church right now is having its greatest impact on the world. Sometimes you might not believe it, but let me tell you, there are more believers in the world today than there have, ever have been in the history of the world. And that's a fact. And so I believe we're looking at this age being played out. And part of that is the summation of the age, the end of the age. And I've said this before. All we see happening, I believe, my interpretation is the book of Revelations is showing us different aspects of this plan coming together from different perspectives. But I do want you to understand that you may have heard something very different about what I'm teaching this morning from this particular chapter. I believe that the book of Revelation is filled with symbolism, rich symbolism. I believe that we use scripture to interpret that symbolism. We don't just make up what we think it means. We look at what the Bible says about similar events in the past and we say, what could this mean to us today? But if you have a literal view of Revelation, you might get concerned at some point. So you might think, well, he's got this wrong. I want to tell you that if that's your view, that's okay too. I have to teach this book from my perspective and the conviction that I have. But if you have a different conviction, we can agree to disagree. In fact, we can debate it. We can talk about it. We don't have to not be friends ever again. The church divides so quickly these days over issues that we should not be dividing about. We should agree on some fundamentals. The Holy Spirit is alive and active in this church. Jesus paid for us through His grace on the cross. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, not as a result of our works, because it's not our doing, it's a gift from God. We have to agree on that. We have to agree that this word is the unadulterated word of God, that it was true yesterday, it's true today, and it will be true forevermore. Every line, every paragraph, every dot in this book is 100% God's word. If we can get those things right, we can walk together. We can celebrate God together. And so I'm saying all of this because if you don't hear what you want to hear this morning, it doesn't mean that you and I can't be friends. We can. I'll be right and we can be friends. So turn with me to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. You know, I'm just joking about being right. I mean, one day I will know and you will know and we'll figure it out together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your Bible, thank you for this word, your word, to us. I pray, Lord, that you will anoint whatever is preached here today, that it would not be anything, Lord, that would cause anybody to have any consternation, but what you would give us all today is revelation and wisdom about who you are, Jesus. This text is about you, Jesus. The whole Bible is about you, Jesus. It points to you. And so let us celebrate that Holy Spirit move amongst us and let this word fall, fall onto fertile soil, my heart included, Lord. And let this word apply to me first before anybody else, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. This is John speaking. He's still in this interlude. And I was told, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So three things are being mentioned. The temple, the altar, and the people. And so at this point, as I said earlier, God wants to remind us of some critical things. This morning, He's going to remind us that we can take peace, security, and comfort, knowing, as I said earlier, that the victory is ours. Why? Because the victory is Jesus's. And we are in Christ. Christ in us is the hope of glory, which means we have the victory too. And that's our first point that I want to get to. You see, we can have peace, security, and comfort in the world that's falling apart, knowing 100% that God is building His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. We know this. 
And I believe John is asked to measure the temple, which I believe is far more significant than a building. I know some interpretations say that this is a literal third temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem. I don't believe that that's what's being referenced here personally. I believe that John is speaking of something symbolic. There's a parallel to the scripture in Ezekiel chapter 40. And it says this, And behold, there was a wall around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six cubits long. Ezekiel is having the exact type of experience that John was having. He's seeing, uh, it's actually described in the book of Ezekiel as a man in bronze that looked like bronze. And if you remember, that's one of the descriptions of Jesus, but I can't tell you it is Jesus or it's an angel. But what Ezekiel is seeing is something similar to what John is seeing. Each cubit being a handbreadth in length, so he measured the thickness of the wall with one reed and the height with one reed. I believe what Ezekiel is seeing is this future temple. In Ezekiel 43, he expands a little bit more later on about what happens when this temple is finally built out. It says, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What's clear is that this new temple will be a dwelling place for God. It will be a place where God's glory exists forevermore. Maybe it's the future temple that will exist in heaven. However, I don't understand that to be true because what I understand is Jesus is enough for us in heaven. We don't need to have another temple in heaven because God will be there with us. In the middle, between the river and the trees, we will have Jesus, the Son of God. The very light that, it's, that He provides will be the light that we need to survive. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 1 describes the same event from another perspective. He says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Again, angel or Jesus, I'm not sure. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what it is, what it is its width, and what is its length. So it's gone from a temple to a city. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be a wall to her of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Once again, the same parallel. God will be with us forever. See, I believe Zechariah is prophesying about the exact same temple. And you might say, but he's talking about Jerusalem, not the temple. He's talking about the holy city of God. And what's clear is in Zechariah's case, this is unlike any physical temple you would ever want to see or ever could see. Why? Because first of all, the temple doesn't have walls. The Lord himself will be the wall around this temple. And he says it's a, he's going to be a wall of fire. And you'll get to that a bit later on in the chapter. And so the question that I have is, if this is not a physical temple, then what is the alternative interpretation? What else could it be? I believe that what John is seeing in this text is a spiritual temple. I believe that what he's seeing in this text is none other than the modern day church. The church of Jesus Christ. After all, that's the very age and the very thing that Jesus came to inaugurate at his first coming. He, he inaugurated the kingdom age. The age we live in today. He established his church. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now you might be thinking, but that's a big stretch. How do we know it's actually not a real building? Well, I want to say this to you, that throughout the New Testament, this symbology has been used over and over and over again. Jesus himself used this. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus in speaking to the religious leaders says this, destroy this temple. And he was by the temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews were concerned. How is that even possible? He says this, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and how will you raise it up in three days? But he said he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so Jesus uses the same illustration. He's not talking about a physical building with bricks and mortar. He's talking about himself. Then Paul sort of expands on this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? I don't know how much clearer it can be. You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Remember he said he would be with us for the rest of eternity. God's spirit with us. Do you know that the day that you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and inhabits you and where you go, the temple is. Why? Because where I go, the kingdom of God follows me. It is inside of me. I cannot separate myself from the kingdom anymore because I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I've been raised to newness of life. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are the temple. One last one. And there's so many others we could go through today, but for the sake of time. Paul's speaking about the household of God. He's speaking about God's church. In Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20, and he says this church, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This will be important later on. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Not a literal cornerstone, not the thing that the temple is built around in the natural, but the thing that the supernatural building is built around. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so with these verses and the many others that exist, I believe this is confirmation for me that John is seeing the church. And what's clear is that God is not done with his church. Why? Because John is asked to measure it. See, I'm not a great DIY guy. I live by the principle of measure, of measure once and cut twice. That's the right way to do it, right? It's not. My son always gives me a hard time. I do something, I'm like, ah, oh, geez, it doesn't fit. But let me tell you, I put up all these sound panels and they all are marginally straight. I mean, it's fine. You know, that's the kind of guy I am. But God is not in the business of measuring once and cutting twice. He measures twice and cuts once. You see, God, in measuring the church, is saying, John, I want you to go and measure the people of God. Make sure that you seal them. It's the same sealing that happened with 144,000. God is saying, I want to know who my church is. But what's clear is measuring comes from final construction. The church has hope because God's not finished with us. The world and the lost have hope today because God's not finished with them. There are people in this world, friends, that need to hear the gospel because guess what? They belong in the kingdom of God. Verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. I'm going to just pause right there. Second point. We can have peace, security, and comfort in knowing that God is preparing his bride. He is purifying his church. I say that because this outer court that is mentioned is significant. There's a picture up there of the, of the temple that was built originally by Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, as we would say in South Africa. This temple was built in 516 BC. It's the second temple after the nation of Egypt was taken, the nation of Israel was taken out into captivity in Babylon. And ultimately, King Herod decided that it was actually too small, so he made it a lot bigger, and he made it more fancy, and he put all sorts of stuff around it. But that's the temple. You see there's a little arrow there, and it's pointing to, if you can see it or can't see it, a little wall. That wall is what became known by Paul as the dividing wall of hostility. 
That wall separated the inner court, which was open to Jews only, and the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles. Anybody that wasn't a Jew was welcome to come and worship in the temple, bring their offerings to the God of Israel. However, the law stated that they could not pass across that wall. Out of interest's sake, and this is an aside, it doesn't have anything to do with the preach, but let me say this to you. That dividing wall of hostility, Paul says, has been broken down in Christ. Which tells me that it doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from, how rich you are, how poor you are, how old you are, how young you are, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're young, whether you're old, you in Christ are welcome into the inner sanctuary. There is no division in Christ. There is no separation. Anybody who has the blood of Jesus in them is welcome to worship with God. There is no requirement. And so why does, in this vision, John sort of alienate the outer court? Well, why does God alienate the outer court? Is he saying that all of a sudden now we must stop thinking about the nations and we're only going to focus on the Jews. I don't believe that that's what's being said here. I think what God is alluding to is that there are religious structures in this world because that's where religious people go to the temple who stand outside, who think that they are part of the church when in fact they aren't. Let me say that again. There are people who consider themselves to be a part of God's church but who aren't. And God says, cut them out. Paul says it this way to Timothy, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Did you hear that, boys? Where are they? Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. I'm joking, my kids are amazing. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the clincher, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. What does Paul say? Avoid such people. Paul's not speaking about the world. The context here is he's speaking about the church. He's saying that within this thing called the church, what people represent or think of the church to be, there are going to be those in the church who have a form of godliness, but who deny its power. Avoid them. Cut them out of the equation. And what I want to say to you this morning, and you might not like this, but here's the deal. In the last days, in these days that we're living in right now, God is going to abandon every form of Christianity that has abandoned its genuineness and its sincerity to the gospel. Which, by the way, is a concept that we should be familiar with. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelations. Remember the seven churches? What did God say to the church in Ephesus in Pergamum? He said, I hate the work of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. They were pagan Christians. They considered themselves to be part of the church, but they were happy to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. God says, I hate them. And then it doesn't end there. He goes on to the church in Thyatira and says, because you have tolerated Jezebel, you are in trouble. In fact, you better get rid of Jezebel. You better stop following Jezebel and her destructive ways, because guess what? If you don't, destruction is coming to you. And then, of course, he goes to the church in Sardis. They thought they were alive, but what does Jesus say? You're dead. Wake up! A dead church is not part of the church. The church in Laodicea was lukewarm, so much so that Jesus said he was going to vomit, he vomit them out of his mouth unless they realized the error of their ways and they came back to Jesus. These churches are not beyond repentance, friends. But the reality is some of them will not repent. Dead Christianity is not part of the kingdom. It's part of the world. And as such, according to the book of Revelations and according to Scripture, it is not part of the true church. Jesus is making his bride perfect. Not almost perfect, not a little bit of blemish. If you read Revelations later on, you'll realize that the bride that Jesus comes back for is a spotless bride. 
verse 2. At the end, it says, And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. You see, we can have peace, security, and comfort knowing that God controls the timeline. God provides the protection. See, the fact is, those that are outside the church, whether that's the unbelieving world who's persecuting the church, or whether it's those who believe they are part of the church but who actually aren't, will bring persecution against the true church. They will trample us. But this persecution, interestingly, is given a time limit. It's given a time limit of 42 months. I don't believe that's a literal period of time. I believe it's highly symbolic, and I believe it's a reference to what Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 12. He says this, the tribulation will last for times, time, and half a time. I told you last week, I don't know what that is. But I can tell you that times is plural. It means two times, 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 a time, three times, and half a time. That's three and a half. Now, is that three and a half literal years? I don't think so. But there is a period of time. Daniel, for Daniel, when he saw this vision, it was at some point to come in the church age. For John, he's living it out right now. People in Smyrna were dying for their faith. It's the same period, interestingly enough, that Elijah spent in conflict with the prophets of Baal. And what the Lord is reminding us is that the church is going to come under persecution. However, there is a limit to it. And even in persecution... God is building his church. Verse 3, and I will grant authority to to my two witnesses. So we're done with the temple now, and now we move into the witnesses. And some say, well, this is a different section entirely. This is different stuff. I believe the two are linked together. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is going to sound very crazy. But we can take comfort, peace, and security knowing that in the season of persecution that we are in, some churches are facing it more severely than others. Some people are facing it more severely than others. We will have a powerful voice. Well, how did you get that? Well, let me tell you, I think the best way to interpret chapter 11 of Revelation is to let chapter 11 interpret itself. And so if the temple is the church, then the two witnesses have to be a continuous representation of the church. I believe it's speaking to the anointing and the power that the church is going to have in this last time. And we notice a few things about the church. First of all, these witnesses are given authority. That's what God says. I gave them authority. And just like the the, the early church and just like the church of today, we have been given authority. Remember, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 10 and verse 19, what did he say? He said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Eleven of the twelve disciples were killed. Jesus lied, right? No. Why? Because Jesus is not talking about protection in the physical realm. He's talking about the fact that the enemy has no authority over our lives. It means that we live for eternity. Catherine said it. We're a kingdom people, not an earthly people. And yes, though your body may fail away and die one day, you are eternal by nature and God has got you in the palm of your hands and that's the authority that you carry. And so when we preach the gospel to the nations, we remind them of that every single day because hell, friends, is a reality that some people are going to. The second thing we see is these witnesses have been given this predetermined period to witness, 1,260 days. Now, if you do the maths, on average, 30 days in a month, times that, right, 30 days in a month, by 12 months in a year, by three and a half gives you 1,260. It's three and a half years. It's exactly the same time period that the church in persecution will have the ability to witness to the world. 
which tells us that a persecuted church, not a comfortable church, is a powerful church. Persecution brings out the heart of every single believer who stands for Christ. The, the Bible tells us that in the end times, or when we are facing judgment, when we are brought before kings and governors and all of these people, Jesus himself promised us that I will put the words in your mouth because the Holy Spirit will fill you and you will know exactly what to say. That's not what we do when we've got public speaking or stand up in front of people or do a TikTok and say, Lord, give me the words to say to my audience today. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with in persecution, there is an anointing and a capacity. That's why people in Sudan right now can watch their families being slaughtered and turn around and preach the gospel. It's not a matter of the flesh. We can't do it. We have a powerful voice in the season because persecution brings out the power in the church. Nobody's going to come back after this message. The fact that these witnesses, third point, are dressed in sackcloth is important. You know, sackcloth was not Chanel Couture. It wasn't like, hey, let me go find a piece of sackcloth. I'm going to put it on it because it's super awesome. Look how great I look. I look like a bum. <laughs> no, sackcloth was worn by the prophets in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Elijah, Z uh, Z Z I mean. Zechariah, I mean, you name it. And even John the Baptist in the New Testament. For what? People put sackcloth on when they preached the message of repentance. God is calling his church to be modern day Elijah's friends. And the church has done this a disservice. Why? Because all we focused on is grace. Jesus loves you. He loves everybody. And you know what the danger is? Because that is true. It's 100% true. I believe it in my heart. Is The danger is that if Jesus loves everyone so much, then why do I need to do what you do? In fact, Jesus is not going to send anyone to hell because actually everyone's going to heaven because God is love. We have done the world a disservice by not preaching repentance, friends. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, 100%. It's not as a result of our works. You can do nothing today to earn God's love. No matter how you've come here, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, Jesus died on the cross for you as much as he died on the cross for me. However, the word metanoia in Greek, which is repentance, means to turn away from that life. We need to call people to Jesus and to repentance, friends. John the Baptist came to remind the world that he was bringing the axe to the root of the tree. You know what he was telling to the religious leaders is, I'm going to bring something that's going to challenge you at the very core of who you are. We've preached a very simple and safe message today. There is repentance required in the kingdom. We've got to allow people to understand that because the truth is the world needs to repent. These trumpets are a result of an impenitent world. We have to repent daily as believers because we're not better than anyone. We sin continuously and repentance is required for us. And you know what we should ask God for more than anything else as believers? is not more stuff or more health or more wealth. It is mercy, friends. God, please give me mercy, a sinner, Lord. And I say this to him all the time because I am a sinner. But we have to go back to this message, friends. We have to preach a message of repentance to a world, friends. You might think, well, that's unloving. It's not. Repentance is as a result of grace. Love came down to earth, died on a cross. Hebrews chapter 12. He did not despise the cross. Died the most horrible death so that he could show us how much he loved us. The least we can do is tell people to repent from their ways. And then lastly, this message in the last days, in this day, is not a message that can operate outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. This text says there are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. It comes from Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 11. Then, then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered him, 
I answered him and said to him, What are the two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes? It's a weird picture. From which the golden oil is poured out. So picture this. There are two trees. They have pipes in them. These pipes pour out golden oil. Do you know what these are? Do you not know what these are, God says? I said, No, my Lord. He said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Friends, this passage helps us understand that what we need in the last days is not clever formulas on how to build a bigger church. What we need to be the church that Jesus is raising up is we need the power and the anointing that the Holy Spirit can provide to us so we can be the lampstand that God has called us to be. Jesus walked among the lampstands in Revelation chapter 2. And the Bible says that he walked amongst the seven lampstands. The lampstands represented the menorah, the seven-branched candle in the Old Testament. Those lights, friends, are lights to the world. Our light will not shine if we have no power of the Holy Spirit in us. We can be as clever as we think we are. We can be as amazing as we might be. We can build bigger buildings. But guess what? If the Holy Spirit is not empowering what we do, we will have no light to shine. I'll talk about this later again. Verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Some crazy stuff, bro. It's like superheroes. One time. We can take peace, comfort and security knowing, friends, that God will respond to our cries. You see, the witnessing of the church in these end times is going to come with certain power. And it's for the first time that we can start to make the connection of who the archetypes of these witnesses are. Do you remember there was a guy called Elijah? And you know what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? He called out to God and fire came down from heaven. Not up, fire goes up, it came down, representing a true miracle. And what did it do? It burned up the altar. And then he destroyed all the prophets of Baal. And so clearly Elijah's being mentioned here. Yeah, Elijah's also the same guy that went to King Ahab in 2 Kings and said to him, guess what, Ahab, I've got bad news for you because you know what that is? It's not going to rain for three and a half years. There's that number again. And it never rained for three and a half years. But then there's also Moses thrown into the mix. Why? Because he says, you have the power to turn water into blood and to bring plagues on all the nations of the world and all this stuff. Moses was the only one who turned water into blood. He's the only one who brought the plagues on Egypt. Why? Because Pharaoh did not want to let his people go. And while the powers that we have as a church are symbolic in nature, we're not going to walk around there like Iron Man zapping everyone with lasers and lights and stuff. I don't believe that's true. They remind us of the power and the authority that we carry. It tells us that no matter what persecution comes against us, God hears our cries and He will respond. And believe me, nobody wants to fall into the hands of a, of an, of a mighty and angry God. And if you think, well, that's not true, Marco, why would God do that? We've seen it the whole book of Revelation. It started right back there in the seals. Remember the, the, the seven seals? We heard about the blood of the martyrs crying out to God and how God responds in judgment. Trumpet, I mean, seal six was pretty, pretty crazy. And then at the beginning of this, this section, the trumpets, what do we hear? The incense of our prayers mixed with the, inc I mean, mixed, our prayers mixed with the incense of Jesus' prayers reach heaven. And what does God do? He responds in judgment. Or what about before trumpet six? The blood crying out from the golden altar, which is the same altar of incense coming up to God in trumpet six is revealed and it's released. Our prayers rise, judgments fall. Now we are not praying for judgment. Please do not be praying for judgment. Please don't say, Lord, please smite those people next door to me. They'd be nasty to me today. Our prayers are for Jesus Christ to come, for his glory to be shown. No matter what we face in this world, we might cry out and say, Lord, please protect me. But believe me, friends, our prayers have an impact. The same power that Elijah had, the same power that Moses had lives in us. It's called the Holy Spirit. 
What's more, the fact that Moses and Elijah are the archetypes of this entire witness account reminds us that we need to, in this last time, speaking to us as Hope Rock Church, be a word and spirit church. Moses was always a picture of the law, the word of God, the word that stands true forever and ever, a word that we hold so dearly to, that we preach every Sunday as, in mu- as much detail, whether it's hard to hear or not, as possible. But guess what, friends? Elijah has always represented the prophets, the Holy Spirit, the power, the fire, the fire of God. That's why when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears with him? Moses and Elijah, the Word and the Spirit, the law and the apostles, the apostles and the prophets. We have to be a church that lives not only just preaching on the Word of God and not deal with the Holy Spirit and hide Him away on a Sunday morning. We have to be a church that operates in the Word, but who's open to God's power moving us to do what He needs us to do. And if we separate the two, if we're only Word, we dry up. If we're only Spirit, we blow up. If we're Word and Spirit, we grow up. Verse 7. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents like Christmas, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Friends, when you speak to the truth, to dead hearts, it is tormenting. Sixth point, we're going to have peace, security, and comfort knowing that after and only after the success of the church will our final persecution come. Now you might be thinking, well, that's an oxymoron. How can we take comfort in persecution? Friends, this is not a new thing. Throughout the Bible, throughout the book of Revelation, what we have to understand is that a true and faithful church will be a persecuted church. The white horse of the gospel rides out. Behind him comes the red horse of persecution. And believe me, he doesn't have an agenda that we would like to hear. And you know what interests me about this period of time, this symbolism between three and a half years, it's it's the same time that Jesus ministered on this earth. You know what's interesting to me about that? Is that Jesus came to this earth. What followed that? Well, he got satanically opposed in the wilderness. Satan tried to tempt him. After he got tempted, guess what happened? They persecuted him. After they persecuted, what did they do? Just like they did to the witnesses. They killed him violently. And the world celebrated in that day saying, look what we did. Here's the king of the Jews. He's dead. Three days later, he rose again. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. And a great fear fell upon all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And the enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. John is not seeing this happen in sequence. What he's seeing is the final judgment happen. But there is something that happens before the final judgment. And that's what I want us to remember this morning. You see, after the greatest persecution that the church will ever face will come the greatest vindication that we could ever hope for or dream of, friends. The world may celebrate that the church is dead. Go to nations of this world, especially Europe, you'll realize you're living in a post-Christian society. They celebrate the fact that God has been excluded from everything. Even the queen, who was a an avid believer could not change that nation. Why? Because God is not welcome in most countries and in most cities in this world that are Western. 
because we become too clever for our own good. And so we don't need God. We need science. We need theories. We need understanding. We need to just make up our own laws. God has been removed from everything. And what we see when that happens is people celebrate. They give each other presents. But you know what happens here? Is this church gets raised to life and is taken up into heaven. Now what's interesting is if it is going to be read literally, and we are taken up into heaven, I believe we're sealed by God, like what happened in Trumpet 6. I mean in Seal 6, we were protected, the 144,000. But this is not a secret rapture. It wasn't me flying a plane one day, then all of a sudden the people are like, where's Mockley? The pilot's gone. Oh my gosh, oh, where's Catherine? She disappeared. I see her stuff on the floor. Where did they all go all of a sudden? No, this is for the world to see. We will be raptured in power and in glory, friends. We will rise up with Jesus in heaven. Everyone will see it. And the Bible says that those that do see it, some of them will die immediately because God will bring judgment, but those that are left will be so terrified that they gave glory to God. Now, we love to read that and think, okay, well, they must get saved. It's not about salvation, friends. When Jesus shows up, it's too late. Nebuchadnezzar, over and over again, gave glory to God. Yes, he's the Lord. He's the God of Israel. He's Lord Almighty. But guess what? He wasn't saved. These people, out of terror and out of fear, will have to understand and for the first time in their lives come to the realization that God is actually who He says He was. He was always who He said He was. And they will have no choice but to get on their knees because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's too late. You can't believe in faith in someone that you see, friends. For the world, it's too late. For us, it's just in time. I want to close with the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. The band can come up. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Can I hear an amen? And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worship God, the old covenant, new covenant, coming together, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and every other time we've heard this phrase, it says, and who is to come. Here it says, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Jesus is back. He's on the throne. We are victorious. The kingdom is here forever and ever and ever. The nations raged, but your wrath came and, for the, and, and the time for the dead to be judged. They are going to be judged for rewarding your servants has come the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. And here's what I love to read. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Remember that northern army, those weird locusts, scorpion things, the horses with teeth and tails of asps. Remember those things that were fearful, that were breathing sulfur, that were destroying people? They did. They're gone. The seventh trumpet has sounded. The church is victorious. The consummation of the Old Covenant and New Covenant has been completed. The 24 elders worship God. And what's more, the gospel has achieved everything that it was intended to do. And here's the deal. This mention of the end is the first time in all of the Bible where we hear that the Great Commission has fulfilled everything God intended it to fulfill. The church has been sealed, it's been raised to glory, and it is done. What blows me away is it says that we will be given rewards. Bible uses different ways to speak about rewards. It says some of us will get crowns. It says some stars will shine brighter than other stars. What are these rewards for and why do we get them? We get them because we suffered for the sake of Christ. Rewards are not a matter of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, by the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And if you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, you are saved by His grace. But as we live out this life, as we allow the sanctification of that little scroll to work in us, the bittersweet gospel, God starts to pile up rewards for us in heaven. And one day we'll get there and we'll understand what these rewards are. But you know what blows my mind? Is that in that moment when Jesus Christ Himself presents us with those rewards, and he says, here, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Here's your super ginormous crown. Do you know what we'll do? We won't be, ah, look at me, Mark, I've got a bigger crown than you, buddy. No. We'll take that crown off our head. We'll get on our knees. We'll lie face down on the floor. And we'll present our crown at his feet. That's what the church will do. And we'll do that forevermore. David Dashner sent me a meme this week, and it really touched my heart. It was a meme of the queen, and it says this, The queen exclaimed, How I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why, asked the chaplain. The queen replied with a quivering, quivering lip, and her whole countenance lighted up by deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. It's the victory of all victories, to surrender to our king forevermore. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more hurt. And it'll all be worth it. On the other hand, if you don't know who Jesus is, the church is not complete. Perhaps today's the day that you become a part of this temple. But I can't make the decision for you. Only you can. And I ask you to stand. Let's lift our hands to our King. Lord Jesus, we give you all the glory this morning. We celebrate, Lord, that we can take heart and we can take comfort and we can take security knowing that the victory is yours and in that the victory will be ours. We celebrate, Lord, the fact that there is an eternity ahead for us, Lord, that is beyond all comparison. But Lord, this morning my heart goes to anyone in this room who has not made the decision to accept the grace of the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would stir that heart, that you would reach into their Holy Spirit and that you would bring the conviction that's required, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would bring salvation to those that are far off and to those that are near. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here this morning and you are one of those people who don't know who Jesus is, I'd love to pray with you at the end. You can come up to the front. I'll be a cat. We'll be here. We have deacons up here. We have elders up here. You don't have to come to me. Just come up here, put your hand on one of our shoulders, and we will pray with you and explain to you what the glorious gospel is all about. We love you, church. Let's worship our King.